Welcome to the Habits of Leadership podcast, brought to you by Cut Through Coaching, helping leaders and their teams to thrive, professionally and personally. Hello and welcome to episode 48 of the Habits of Leadership podcast. My name's Dan Hasler from Cut Through Coaching, and before we kick off today's episode, I'd just like to mention our Habits of Leadership Academy. We still have a couple of spots available for this year's cohort, and if you'd like to join small groups of people who are interested in the topics and themes that we cover in this podcast, then you might want to join us once a month and dig into those in more detail and learn practical strategies so that you can apply some of these themes in your day-to-day leadership. If you're interested in learning more about the Academy, then head over to habitsofleadership.com and click on the Academy page. I also wanted to give a quick shout out to 73 Big Easy. Now, I've no idea who 73 Big Easy is other than to say he left a five-star rating on Apple Podcasts. And I'm going to try and be a bit more diligent in uh, recognizing those of you who leave us a positive comment or even a negative one, to be honest, because we really do value you taking the time to, one, listen, but then also um, share what you get from the podcast. So thank you very much, 73 Big Easy. Now, my guest today is someone who I've been hoping to get on the podcast ever since I first heard his podcast. Damien Hughes is Professor of Organisational Psychology and Change at Manchester Metropolitan University. He's also the co-host of one of my favourite podcasts, the High Performance Podcast. The High Performance Podcast brings together world champions, elite athletes, leaders in business and entrepreneurs and artists to really get to grips and dig into what does it really mean to be a high performer. Damien is also the author of eight best-selling business books which have been translated into 10 languages. His biography of Marvin Hagler went on to become the UK's best-selling sports biography. He's worked with England Rugby League, Scotland Rugby Union, and a wide range of international and national sporting bodies. He also works in business, and there's a lot of synergy between his work and what we do here at Cut Through. I'm currently reading his book, The Winning Mindset, in which he explores what leaders can learn from the world of sport. And that's really what we're going to dig into today. What can we learn about leadership from the world of sport? Damien, thank you so much for joining me. No, thanks for having us, Dan. I'm, uh, I'm really excited to be chatting with you. I've, uh, I know we're chatting off air here in a Manchester lad. Spreading the word out in uh, Australia is fantastic, so it's a real honour to speak to you. As I mentioned in our introduction there, the, the, the High Performance Podcast with yourself and Jake Humphreys, it's... Um, you know, I've really um, enjoyed listening to it and, and the people you get on there and the questions you ask and all that kind of stuff. And we often share, as, as you'd be well aware, many people do share those um, episodes with people they work with. But one question that you and Jake always throw to your guests yeah. um, at the outset is, is what is your definition of high performance? And I want to turn the tables on you well, today, Damien Hughes, and throw it to you yeah. and say, all right, all right, Professor of Change and Organisational Psychology, what is your definition of high performance? Yeah, I like that question. I was going to say it's a great question, but then that implies that I'm sort of patting myself on the back. But a little bit, yeah, a little bit. yeah, a bit. But but I do like it because it opens up so many different avenues that I think it demonstrates that there is not one formula, there is not one way. There can be lots of different ways, and I think the variety of answers that we've had on 
the podcast demonstrates that. I think my definition is twofold. Um, I start with the idea of high performance is doing the best you can with the resources you have, the knowledge that you possess in the moment you're in. So what I mean by that is, would you go back and do things differently? Yeah, but hindsight is easy to do. In the moment that you're in, based with the resources and the knowledge you have, it's about giving your absolute best. And I think the second concept, consequence of that, Dan, is that I think when you when you ask yourself that question on a regular basis, that therefore drives consistency. And I think high performance also is about consistently doing that. So everyone has good days, everybody has bad days. But when you ask yourself that question regularly, the gap between your best and worst days is narrower than everybody else's. Just building up right on that point, the, yeah. the, the difference between your, your best and your worst or a good and a bad or, or whatever it might be. Um, I'm wondering, let's say that I was charged with helping others achieve high performance, right? What's the best way to, or what's a way that you can help those people? So, for example, a coach of a, a football team or a leader of a sales team or a, um, a, a principal of a school team where there's a, they see this gap between their best and their and their and I don't want you know, the best and a less good performance or yeah, the yeah. worst performance. How, how do you how do you navigate that? Um, what are some of the, the the thinking and strategies that we need to be or they need to be really mindful of when trying to close or bridge that gap? Yeah, again, it's a really good question. I think I would start from the premise that confidence to be able to achieve anything comes from evidence. So you need to help them find evidence of what they're already good at. So it's almost like, think of it like an architect. If they're going to build a house, you need a blueprint to be able to be able to build from and plan from and and, uh, uh, and utilise your resources. And that's when you talk about high performance, you need to know well, what is high performance in your world and do you have the capabilities of it? So a really simple way of doing it is to ask them like to set the parameters of high performance. So if you're working with a sports team, it might be your best game. If you're working with a sales team, it might be your best client. Um, and then you do an exploration of that. Let's explore it. Right. What were you doing? What did you consistently show up? What was the behaviours? How did you respond? And you start exploring to find evidence that then builds confidence that you know you're capable of high performance. So now how do we put in place those pillars and those structures and foundations that mean you can do it repeatedly? And that therefore drives the consistency of it. So that would be the first place. You need to find evidence. Rather than look at what you can't do, you need to focus on what you can do but find tangible uh, evidence of where doing that has taken place. Yeah, that, that, that strikes me as um, it sort of resonates with the process we use a lot with our, the people we work with called appreciative inquiry. And I'm not sure if you've yeah, aware definitely. of that. But the, yeah, the idea of discovering when you're at your best and then using that as a foundation of strength, as you say, rather than, I mean, I don't know how often you get called into places and there's just this assumption that there's a deficit, there's a problem, there's a, there's a hole that needs to be filled yeah. rather, and, rather than, well, actually, there's some pretty strong foundations here and, and that's what we're going to build on. Yeah, that's often the, so when you say, when I go and work with teams, it's often teams that are in some kind of crisis, whether that's uh, they've lost a big game, whether that's, they're underperforming over a longer period of time. They've sacked a head coach, things like that. You know, the, the, 
the organisation is regarded as toxic. You'll often hear lots of these different reasons. And I think it's important when you come in there to start from the premise of, well, when you're good, why are you good? And let's start by exploring that because otherwise you just end up firefighting. And it's like fighting on the back foot. You, you, you find yourself reacting rather than responding to situations. So, yeah, I think what you say there and the techniques that you apply of appreciative inquiry um, are the most effective places to start them. So if they're the most effective, what are some of the least effective strategies that people use? That, you know, what are, <laughs> you know, no names, but but yeah. what are, what are, what are, you know, you you've worked across you know, multiple disciplines, yeah. multiple, you know, different all the real wide range of sporting um, environments, businesses. What are some of the mistakes do you think that either individual leaders or coaches or maybe organizations on a more broad level in their desire to achieve high performance what are some of the mistakes that you see yeah regularly <laughs> yeah I, again it's a really it's a really incisive question you're asking Dan I think uh, I would articulate it as the three f's if I was to give you the most common mistakes I uh, I thought so I I would dub them the three F's and they are, cool. they use fear, facts or force. So what do I mean by that? Well, I think one of the most ridiculous phrases that you hear in the corporate world is create a burning platform for change. Now, mm-hmm. when you look at the etymology of that phrase, a burning platform, it comes from the Piper Alpha oil rig disaster where the people were on a burning oil rig in the North Sea and they had yeah. a choice of staying on a burning rig or jumping into a burning sea. Well, neither option's particularly <laughs> good. So when people come in and say, we don't do this, we'll lose our jobs. If we don't do this, we'll have to close the business down. You just create um, a tunnel in focus. You, you create myopia. People become reactive. So using fear is a strategy you see a lot, but doesn't particularly work effectively. It might help you run away from the immediate threat. But, it, you, but you might run into another threat. Again, it's uh, so there's no long-term focus or planning. The facts one is where you just get people bombarding you with stats and facts and figures, and it's almost like, to, like talking to the head and not to the heart, not giving people a powerful enough why, just telling them about what you want and, and, uh, and how they can achieve it. And it becomes quite clinical in environments like that. Um, I remember reading a story years ago about how um, in sort of uh, Russia, in uh, in uh, in communist Russia, they used to give quotas and targets to different factories and businesses. And uh, there was a nail factory somewhere in the north of the country. And it was almost about they had to produce uh, so many thousand nails a day. And then for some reason, they changed the start and said they had to produce so much tonnage of nails a day. So to hit the quota, they started producing like 10 foot long nails. So they were useless, but they hit the quota. So I think it's like when you focus just on facts rather than the reason why, I think uh, you get um, lots of people justifying the jobs. And then force. Um, So I think one of the most sort of chilling phrases you can use is you'll do it because I told you to do it. You'll do it because I'm the gaffer, because I'm the boss. And when you hear that, you know, I often say to leaders, that's almost like a one-time only button you can press, that you can't go back and press that button again. Once you've done it, that's the last time you can ever use it. You don't get a second chance to throw your weight around like that. It's because people just don't follow hypocrites. People don't follow somebody just because of a status or a title. They follow them because because they believe in them, they feel safe with them, and they trust them. 
So if your only response is you're doing it because I told you to, again, it's an it's another recipe for long term disaster. But you, if you get called in to places that might be in crises, yeah. what you know, use that term to describe. You know, maybe it's a team heading towards relegation. Maybe it's as you said, a toxic culture. I'm going to guess that the, the, some of those three Fs, at least one yeah. or two of them, have probably been bandied around prior to you being called in. And then, and then my guess is that you're you've then been tasked with fixing that, <laughs> and I, it, and I wonder what sort of challenge that is. You know, if you're if you're if you're sitting across from the person who's used the Fs, um, how do you how do you communicate the value in in your thinking in your approaches to somebody who presumably uh, believes that fear, facts, and force is the way? And if they just did their job, then everyone would be all right we won't be in this mess you know yeah so again i think in situations like that um and i and, and i can answer this based on loads of mistakes that i've made loads of cock-ups mm. loads of situations that if you could replay them the mm. learnings that you get from them are so invaluable and um, you're talking about your learnings you're talking about the learnings you've had as someone going in to try and, absolutely yeah yeah, yeah okay. definitely yeah. so i've made so many cock-ups over mm. such a long period of time that i think like like I've learned, like, I've got frames of reference now that says, if you feel that people are bringing you in just to tick a box, don't do it. If you feel that people are... So, for example, when, like, my background is around sort of creating cultures and helping leaders create cultures where people can thrive to their potential. And what I often say is, say sport's a really good example of this. What I see with so many sports teams is they discuss the topic of culture twice in a season. The first time they discuss it is in pre-season when they've got loads of meeting time and they've not got pressure games, so they use it as a, a meeting agenda. Let's talk about culture. And then the second time they talk about it is when they lose a few games and they're flailing around for a reason why they've lost games and they go, oh, it must be culture. So they're the two occasions it's used. And what... I, I've learned over time is when you sense that that's their, their frame of reference, that's where they relegate culture to in their thinking. You're wasting your time. And what I often say to them is, if you're not prepared to invest in this properly, don't introduce it as a topic because there might be a later period when you do fancy doing this and taking it seriously. So don't create cynicism and resistance now by doing it half-heartedly. But, you know, that, as I say, that's been based on going into these places and taking on that brief and then coming up against resistance and cynicism. So that's one thing. Um, second thing as well is I often say, if it's a leader bringing me in, one of the big conversations I'll have with them is that I have your back. We have to have a relationship of trust with me and the leader. So I'll say to them, like, there's a great um, analogy that I use that I read about that, like more far-sighted Roman emperors back in the day when they were sort of going out fighting battles and wars, the more far-sighted emperors appointed a role called the Memento Mori. And the Memento Mori was somebody that when they're coming back into the city after a great triumph and everyone's out there cheering them, the Memento Mori is the guy on the shoulder just saying to them, you are mortal, you are fallible, you do make mistakes. And the idea of that is stop you getting carried away with your own importance. So I'll often say to lots of leaders, whether this is business or, co or head coaches I work with, I'll be in memento mori. So sometimes we'll have conversations 
that are uncomfortable or I'll give you feedback that I'm picking up or that I'm observing that isn't just about slapping you on the back and telling you uh, you're great. But you have to trust that I'm doing that because I've got your back because I care about you and I care about you implementing it. So again, if I sense that that relationship's not there or they don't quite have that appetite for that relationship, again, it's like, let's part as friends. Let's not, let's not go into a relationship and then fall out because we don't like that. So I think contracting, to use a bit of a formal term for that, is really key. And then the third thing that um, I'll often do with them is... Um, so there's a the stuff around um, sensing where their appetite is, sensing about the um, about the contracting and whether they're up for it. And then it's very much around uh, not getting bought into the emotion of it. So I, I see lots of people that come in that then want to be sort of centre stage. And I think the best work for somebody like my job happens in the shadows, that you don't know that I'm there, you don't know that I'm working there. Because you put me in front of a room full of players, and I've had lots of coaches that have done this. I reckon give me give me a decent amount of time. I could I could probably get about seventy percent buy in if I if I if it went really well. Which some people might go, okay, that's all right. But then I go, but there's still thirty percent that just won't buy into me completely because I don't. I'm not a head coach. I'm not well versed in their sport. So they just go, who are you? What do you know? Whereas you put a head coach in front of that group, they've got a chance of winning about 95% of the room over because they've got the credibility in terms of they know what they're talking about. But equally, they do wield authority. So what I often say is my work has to take place in the shadows, that I'll work with the head coach and give them the tools to go and build the high-performing culture rather than me. Because um, just because of that effectiveness, that I can never be as effective as a head coach in getting complete buy-in. And I wonder if that's also um, a really good way of addressing the fact that actually it might not be them that need sorting out. Do you know what I mean? Like how many times do you get called in and somebody says, look, I need you to work with my people? You know, yeah, yeah. And, and, yeah. you know, and, and it's like, yeah, I'm, I'm sure I do. I'm, I'm sure I do need to work with them. But how about you as well? And, and I wonder <laughs> yeah. if, and, and I, I mean, I'm guessing here, but I'm wondering if you actually taking the other people out of the equation might actually be really compounding the impact that you have and you're not diluting it to a room full of, you know, 20, yeah, 30 other people. Well, I remember years ago, I went into a business once and I was talking to like a chief exec and he went, oh, we've got an issue over there with engagement mm. and things like that. And I said, oh, right, what, what part of the business is that? And he went, that's a non-critical, non-essential element of the business. And I went, you don't refer to it like that, do you? And he was like, yeah, yeah. I was like, you've got a problem. Yeah. I'd have a problem with you yeah. if you're describing me as non-critical it, yeah. and non-essential. It's like, yeah. you've just yeah. diminished who I yeah. am and the role that yeah. I've got. And yeah. sometimes it's it's like, Lots of leaders, they can't see the wood from the trees, and that's not a bad mm. thing. It's just that they, they're hammered. Do you know what I mean? They've got a million yeah. different tasks to focus on. Mm. So, again, like a nice way that I'll sometimes talk about this memento mori role is that I'll say to them, let's view you through three lenses. And th these three lenses come from uh, Warren Buffett advised on this. He says, first of all, view them on do they have the energy? So are you present? Are you visible? Like, uh, do you have the appetite for this? The second one is do you have the intelligence? And what I mean by that is the credibility to speak about your industry with the depth of knowledge. But the third one is, do you have integrity? 
do you role model the behaviours you're asking everyone else to do? And what Warren Buffett's advice was, it doesn't matter if you've got energy and intelligence, if you don't have integrity, you should be nowhere near a culture that's serious about improving. So again, it's often in that area of, are you role modelling the behaviours? Don't, like, remember years ago hearing about this when Alan Pardew was a West Ham manager. And uh, when you hear this phrase about, oh, the manager's lost the dressing room, what it basically means is people just don't follow hypocrites. And there's a famous example where he gave an interview on telly bemoaning the baby Bentley culture that he'd inherited at West Ham. So no, there's too many players getting richly rewarded and not delivering as much, which is fine. He's entitled to that view. But then two months later, he's turned up for training in a baby Bentley. And that's the moment that you speak to people around there. They go, that's when he lost the dressing room. Because people, you can't lambast us for one behaviour and then demonstrate um, that same behaviour when it suits you. So again, it's often about helping head coaches just go, don't do that, don't do that, the symbolism of that. So I'll give you a really simple example of it, how like the symbolism of this. That one of the easiest ideas that I often implement with a head coach is I say, plan your press conference before the game. And most head coaches go, what do you mean? You go, well, you know that you there's only three outcomes. You're going to win, lose, or draw. So you should know what you're going to say before you go into that press conference because you shouldn't be thinking about reacting to that game. You should be thinking about how you're going to set the team up next week in training. So if you walk in front of those cameras and you start moaning about the referee's incompetence and then think on Monday morning when you get the players in the game review... That, you've got, that they're going to buy into taking complete accountability when you've already given them an escape route. You're kidding yourself. So little things like that of getting of working with coaches just to recognise that how they role model this stuff is really important to then getting the buy-in from, uh, from other people after that. In the sporting world in particular, do you think that, you know, obviously there's they're not only sporting teams, but they're big, big businesses as well. To what extent, when you're working with the sporting teams, do, are you also interested in the, the, for example, the CEO or the chairman or anything like that? Or are you specifically just focusing on the, the output and on the on the field? Yeah, um, it depends, to be honest, Dan. Uh, so some, um, where I can, I'd like to sort of go and then... Um, either work with the CEO and the, and the decision makers, or if not, work with the head coach. So they work with the decision makers because I think this is a really underrated virtue of the best leaders. They manage upwards and it's stuff that, again, you don't see. But I think if you're managing upwards, you're getting people bought into what you're trying to do and you're buying yourself patience. You're buying an understanding. I know for a fact that a lot of people who listen to our podcast are kind of in that middle management role in whatever yeah. field they're in. Just to help them un- understand a little bit more about what you mean by managing up, because I think it's a, a it's it's such an under underused and undervalued approach that yeah might help might help people really navigate some of their biggest challenges, but they're just unaware of this con- even this concept of what does it mean to manage up. Yeah, well, if I use the uh, the analogy then uh, from some research I did a number of years ago, I wrote a book, and I know this might give you a nosebleed being a City fan, but I wrote a book on Alex Ferguson. Yeah. Um, yeah. We're uh, done, mate. Thanks for your time today, yeah. Damien. It's been great. <laughs> <laughs> but when people talk about him, and, 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 and I appreciate, like you say, from your from your side of the city that it can... Uh, it, uh, that it can leave a bad taste, but I think I think that 
there was three things that he did brilliantly. That So everyone associates his great teams and things like that, but I think he did three things brilliantly, and one of them was he managed upwards. So he bought himself patience by going to the decision makers, the people that ran the club, and constantly communicating with them about what he was doing, getting them invested in the program and the process and the uh, and the work he was doing in the shadows. So right. when people remember his first five years at Manchester United where he never won anything and that like the the performance was dismal. I I remember interviewing some of the decision makers uh, for the book, and I asked them why did you why did you not uh, sort of fall prey to this hire and fire culture, and they said because he was keeping us abreast that he was developing a youth structure, his work ethic was second to none, the areas he was focusing on in terms of developing a culture. They said, we knew that because he was keeping us informed of this at all times, they said, even if we had sacked him, whoever would have appointed would have come in and had to work on the same areas that he was focusing on. So it was almost like we kept faith in him. So I think sometimes that it's easy to denigrate the decision makers that they don't understand. But the question I'll say to most coaches is, well, have you explained it? Have you gone and explained it beforehand? I mean, another simple way of managing upwards is, again, when I, like, I've, I've worked with coaches that are taking on a position and a, a really basic truism is, say, you're never more powerful than the moment before you play your first game because you've not lost yet, so nobody's lost any faith with you, but they believe in you enough to have appointed you into that position. So that's the time where you need to leverage your advantages. And I worked many years ago with one young head coach and we managed to get the decision makers, the people that had appointed him. Once they offered him the contract, he said, can we have a team meeting? And they'd never been described as a team before. It was like the chief exec, uh, the chief operating officer and the finance guy and the head coach. And I came in and we facilitated it. And what we did was we basically said, let's think about what the best decision makers behave like. And these guys were all smart, intelligent business people, but then put them in the emotional filter of a sports environment, they end up reacting. So we said, right, how are you going to respond if he loses his first 10 games? How are you going to respond when social media goes mad about him? How are you going to respond when um, he has to get rid of one of your star players? And we spoke about things like that. And what these decision makers were saying is, well, we understand that would be necessary. So we'd be patient, we'd be supportive. We would. So when things happened that didn't go according to plan, not as extreme as what we'd discussed, mm. this head coach could go back to them and say, you agreed that you were going to be patient with this and this is, I'll keep you informed as long as you agree to back me. So they felt themselves as part of the, as part of the dynamic rather than being separate from it. And I think this is where you see lots of people, whether it's in business or sport, it, they almost create a them and us culture with the decision makers. And I think building those relationships to buy yourself time uh, uh, is essential. Yeah. I think... The other things that I think Ferguson did well that nobody that are less obvious, so a lot of people don't spot it, is one, he managed upwards. Secondly, he viewed everything through long-term cycles. So most managers view things in a one or two-year window. He viewed everything in four-year cycles. So he, and he could do that once he had the security of having success. He could start planning for, right, in four years' time, I've got this young lad that should be coming to his peak. 
but I've got an older professional in his way. So that was why you might get rid of someone like David Beckham when he was still had years in him because he knew he had somebody yeah. coming behind him. And then the final thing that I think Ferguson did was that um, he kept uh, rotating his backroom staff. So if you take a comparable figure like Arsene Wenger, in Wenger's first 20 years at Arsenal, he had one assistant coach, Pat Rice. In Ferguson's first 20 years, he had seven assistant coaches because he would bring in people to plug his knowledge gap. So when he was working, when he wanted to impose like a draconian strict standards, he brought Archie Knox in like a, a, a Scottish authoritarian. Yeah. Then when he started developing young players, he brought Brian Kidd in, a youth coach that had worked with these. Then when he wanted to become tactically astute in Europe, he brought in a Portuguese guy, Carlos Quieres. And he always had the humility to go, I know what I don't know. So I'll bring somebody in to uh, to complement that. And I think those three things uh, are really less obvious virtues. But that's what I see lots of head coaches understand, um, the ones that sustain a long career as success. Yeah. And the ones that don't, don't. Yeah, exactly. You know, like, yeah. That's it. Because because it because it's also like they focus on the glitzy stuff. They focus on the idea yeah. of thinking that you've got to be dishing out bollockings. You've got to be the guy sort of tearing the strip off. You've got to be very visible. And the reality is it's the work you do in the shadows will reveal itself mm. in the light every time. One of the things that um and, and it pains me to say, but obviously as you know, being a Man City fan, Ferguson is yeah. you know, you could you could never ever obviously admit you that you admired him no, know, in, of in, a, in in a blue pub. But <laughs> one of the things which came through um from in your book and it was one of the very first sort of concepts in the book about this idea of being uh, having real simplicity around communication. Yeah. It strikes me if in your writing around Ferguson that he was like the master of that, you know, uh, in terms of being able to deliver deliver a message which wasn't convoluted, it was straight to the point, and but it, but not it wasn't only short, but it was laden with information. If that makes sense, it was yeah. It, yeah. Could you just yeah. talk talk a little bit around that? Because I've I, the reason I'm asking is I've spent the day working with a team full of people, and we spent the whole day to come up with one sentence. Wow. And, and and if we said that at the start of the day, you know, they were all going, oh, you're kidding, you will be done by 10 o'clock, you know, and 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 because we're all on the same page here, we all know what we're all about. And, and it doesn't yeah. take long to peel back a couple of layers and no one's got a clue, you know, we think we're on the same page and they're not in the same library. So it's like, okay, well, <laughs> I like that, yeah. Yeah, yeah, you know, like, how, and it, it strikes me again from reading your book that Ferguson understood this and you know, it worked hard to make things simple. Yeah, I think I, I, I think there's a real virtue in it. And I think, that, like, what I've seen working with sort of elite coaches, um, I remember trying to work out a ratio, and my estimate is I think they spend about seven hours to deliver a 20-minute message. They'll do seven hours mm. prep. And this is when they're at the elite level. They don't lose mm. sight of the idea that it's constantly about trying to strip it back, strip the unnecessary things back. I remember... I asked Ferguson once, I said, how long do you think a great team talk should be? And he said, and he didn't answer in minutes, he answered in words. He said, 10 words, less if you can. And it, the famous example that he uses is that Roy Keane recounts this, and given the sort of fractious relationship that they had, I think the fact that he can still acknowledge it was his famous team talk once when he said he walked in the room before they played Tottenham. And Keane was like, right, we're all sat there, we're all thinking, we're fired up for this, we're, we're pumped for it. He said... Uh, 
We know what Tottenham are like. They'll play lovely passing football. We'll get stuck into them. The last half hour, we'll physically dominate them and we'll beat them. And he went, we didn't need him to over-elaborate. He said, and Ferguson walked in the room, looked round and went, lads, it's Spurs. Turned around and walked out. And Roy Keane said it was brilliant because everyone knew what he meant. And it's almost became yeah. an adjective in its own right. Spursy. Yeah. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. Like the like yeah, the yeah. law let you down. They were they're not gritty. They're not resilient enough. And mm. I think there was an there, there's an art to that that we can hear the sound bite and think, oh, that's it. But the reality yeah. is, there's a lot of thinking that goes in behind it. You look at look at great advertising. I read a piece this weekend just gone that was saying that um, the uh, the diabetic association in the UK paid this guy millions to come up with. And he came up with a line at lunchtime, and the and the line was, "A spoonful of medicine makes the sugar go down." Yeah. Now that's genius, right? <laughs> that now, genius. now you're paying this guy millions, and the reality yeah. is, you're not paying him for that line. You're paying him for the years of effort that he's gone to to be able to craft that message in just one simple line. You know, so I think when like. There's an elegance to it. And the reason simplicity works is because we live in a world of noise. We live in a world of constant interruption. Like there's a stat that says when you've got your phone on in a working day, you've interrupted 37 times every 60 minutes. So less than every two minutes, there's an interruption, social media, phone call, email, um, somebody sending you a text. And what we know is when you get distracted by that blue flashing light on your phone, takes you 22 minutes to get your levels of concentration back to where they was before you answered it. So we live in, the phrase I use is, we live in a world of smart technology that makes us stupid. Mm. So the ability of leaders or coaches in any context is how do you cut through all that noise and say, this is what we're doing. This is the message. This is one thing I need you to focus on. And I think that... It's not been a coincidence that these leaders that are sustaining high performance over a long period of time invest an awful lot of time in making sure their messages are simple uh, and accessible. They don't get caught up in their own intelligence. So I did an interview earlier this week with a guy called Toto Wolf, who's the team principal of the Mercedes Formula One team. And he we were talking uh, in general terms, but he was talking about, he said, oh, I got rid of social media off my phone. He said, he said, what do I want to look at somebody's sort of a sanitized version of their perfect life for? He said, how's that going to help me? He said, I'd re- he said, I'm happy sat on a plane for 10 hours, just in my own thoughts, looking out the window, thinking about how do I nail this message in the, in the most succinct form possible. Mm. And as I say, my, like my very crude calculation is that when I work with sort of elite coaches, they tend to invest around seven hours for every 20 minutes worth of communication that they'll do with mm. their teams. Which strikes me that means that people, they have to have this obsessive um, approach to that because you might, you could choose to wing it and then stuff it up and get fired. So to be good, you have to say, okay, well, for 20 minutes, I'm going to spend seven hours, if that's the, you know, whatever yeah, you yeah. use that as the metaphor. But we're going to spend a lot of time here. We've got to put a lot of effort and a lot of energy into this. How do, and is it even possible, for people who are at that, at that real elite level to maintain some semblance of wholeness or holistic 
well-being. I'm, I'm shying away from the word balance because I don't yeah. know if that really captures what I'm after. But I'm talking about, you know, or or is it a case of, nah, if you want to be the best in your field, other things have to fall away. Yeah, I think that's really, uh, wow. I think it... it I think it's really interesting because I think it's I think it's the psychologist Philip Tetlock talks about the hedgehog or, or the eagle I think it is so the eagle flies above and sees the whole landscape the hedgehog sort of just sees what's immediately in front of him and I think I don't think there's there's one definition I don't think there's one or the other I don't think it's either or either one is successful or the other isn't I think there's a combination both I think that I think that. Those two words are really important, both and. You can be both um, one thing and another, rather that you have to fit into one category of either or. So I think what I found for a lot of these guys is that they're obsessive about it, but they also, but part of their obsessiveness is they build in time away from it, but see that as enhancing it. Does that make sense? So, yeah. So, so it's like an athlete that sees rest as part of their training. Mm. So, if they start to view rest as part of their training, they don't overexert themselves. They can mentally be comfortable with laying on a sofa for an afternoon and not mm. beating themselves up for feeling lazy or being uh, unproductive because they see that as part of their process of being an elite performer. So, I, I think what I found is that a lot of sort of high uh, high performing coaches they see reading diverse range of books or taking an interest in things that are outside of their world is a way of making them rounded but they also see that as enhancing them when they come back to their uh, to their own performance so like there's a really and again apologies for sort of laboring the example of ferguson but oh you're killing me no, I know, but, I, but... Let's talk about Guardiola. Yeah, well, well, <laughs> well, we can come on and talk about him in a bit, but but, but I think this was one of the things that Ferguson was... Uh, that he claims was one of the keys to his longevity, that there was the chairman of the club at the time, a guy called Roland Smith, that said to him, you're too myopic, and said to him, you've got, you, you're too obsessive, you need to... If you're going to sustain a long career in this, you need to have other hobbies. And towards the sort of last third of his career, he developed an interest in racehorses, he, he, he went to the opera, went to the theatre, he read really prodigiously a wide range of books. And when you speak to players there, what they found really interesting was he was bringing back lessons from the opera or a, a classical music concert he'd been to into his dressing room. So he was then interested in how does a conductor get people to respond to his instructions without having to say anything so he went and pursued that because one it was getting him out and seeing a broader perspective than just football but he then was looking at oh i could use that idea and and uh, and bring that back in and you know and he'd relate it to different stories that he'd tell or team talks that he'd give he'd relate it to seeing like placido domingo projecting himself with confidence and things like that so i think the best coaches have a diverse range of interests but they've almost got that that unconscious part of their brain is picking up ideas that they can take and bring it back into their uh, uh, their area of specialism 
you know, but again, to use the example of Guardiola, when he took his sabbatical mm. in New York, you read about he was spending time with Gary Kasparov, understanding strategy. You know, Guardiola's best mate is a guy called David Trueba, who's a poet. And Trueba talks about how uh, Guardiola's interested in how uh, Trueba sort of gets all these ideas for poetry and then discerns the irrelevant bit so he can then focus on communicating the core of his message. So, again, you look at these guys and they do have, they can seem obsessive, but they do deliberately force themselves out of their out of their worlds to go and get more information um, that, uh, that can complement it. Let's say, so, you, so you've got a coach who is, even when they're resting, they're kind of got their antennas out, seeing what they can pick up to take back to um, their, their players or, you know, in the, in the business sense, the leader has done their thing, take it back to their team. Yeah. How do you help then the leader who's spent a lot of time, their whole career perhaps, coming to this point of view where they're realising, okay, this is the thing, this is what we need to do. How do you then help them have the confidence and the uh, courage perhaps to then say, okay, let and let go, you know, and, and, and let the players or let the team find their way in that. Because one of the things I've observed is, you know, the players who handle pressure moments the best or the play or the teams in, yeah. in the corporate world, which handle crises the best yeah. are the ones who back themselves and trust themselves. And my argument is they can only learn to trust themselves if they've been given the autonomy to explore. Because I think we kind of breed out this from a very early age, you know, kids turn to the teacher and they don't know if they're right until the teacher tells them if they're right. Yeah. They don't know why they've lost marks. And, and I wonder if, that can carry on into adulthood, even in elite performing environments where actually, you know, and it's almost like the given, it's the norm that the coach will say, this is the way it is. And, and if that doesn't work, then the people on the ground who are actually the ones who need to solve the issue haven't ever been given that autonomy to find new solutions to problems which they've never seen before. If that makes sense, it does, and I think you've nailed it, Dan. I think you've nailed the that you used the you used the word there right at the start of uh, of your question, which was about trust. It's about trust, about how how like I asked the, the boxing promoter Eddie Hearn this about his team. I said how I said how do you build trust? He said give it, just give it, and then yeah. watch what they do with that if they choose to cherish it and and treat it with discretion and care. Give them more. If they don't, mm. stop giving it to them. But it, it, but that was a neat summary of it. But I think that idea of trust is is, um, is something that doesn't just develop. It needs to be um, it needs to be worked on. It needs to be part of any leader, whether that's a head coach or a business leader. It has mm. to be part of your strategy about how do you do this. So the best coaches get into this habit, and again, this is where I'll sometimes work with them. Of ask a question and then just allow them to answer it. Say nothing. Be comfortable with the discomfort of silence. Ask a question and then just stand there and wait for them to do it. If you want to know how much trust exists in the workplace, have a look at how many people are asking questions. Mm, yeah. Because when somebody asks a question and puts their hand up and says, Dan, I don't understand this, or I'm not sure how to do this, there's two things that are going on underneath the psychological surface of that simple question. The first thing is that they have to feel psychologically safe that they're not going to get kippered, that they're not going to get set up and made to look stupid. 
or exposed or ridiculed for not having the answer. But the second thing that they're doing is they're giving you the chance to build trust. They're saying to you, I don't know, and I'm going to trust that you're going to deal with this in a discreet and a sensitive manner. So how you handle that next as a coach Mm. determines whether trust is going to exist or not. If you take the piss out of them, laugh at them, roll your eyes, throw your hands up in the air because, oh, we've told you this a million times, you've just eroded trust. If you go, right, okay, let's handle this. Let's go back to first principles. You develop trust. So trust is about giving it, but giving opportunities for people to feel that they're being trusted. Is it possible to rebuild it when you've been burnt then? And again, you know, going back to what you were saying before, when people have invited you in, into environments where they're in crises or it's described as toxic, trust is really hard to find. Is trust something that can be, how easy is it, I guess, to hit reset and and, and, and go again? Or is it kind of, well, we're knackered here, you need to get rid of, you know, you need to change your people. Again, I think it's a really it's a really powerful area to look at focusing on. I think the first way is you need to go in and hold your hands up. I think the, the best way of developing trust is to admit, I've, I made a mistake here, I cocked up, I got this wrong. And I think if you can do that as a leader, I think that sets a tone of safety for everyone else. So I can admit we made a mistake as well. There's a great line that I remember reading uh, the inauguration speech that Barack Obama gave when he was elected president in 2009. And he had a great line that he said, how can we, um, uh, he, he said, if all we're doing is shaking our fists at each other, how can we shake hands? And it's the idea of if all we're doing is accusing and you didn't do this and you didn't do that, how do you then build that trust of shaking hands and saying, let's start from a shared agenda? So I think when you go in with the idea of, let's hold my hands up, this is the mistakes I've made. I think that is a starting point for how to do it. And I think that then tells you that some people can't can't move on from that. In that case, maybe you do have to move them on from your organisation. But before you reach that conclusion, you need to at least give them the opportunity to meet you in, uh, in a place of compromise. But that's hard, isn't it? For anyone, that's hard to admit we're wrong like even just around the kitchen table you know it's hard to say hey you know what i've stuffed up here in a change room a a football team change room or a or a boardroom you know can you give any examples of where you might have been side by side with someone and coach them through um how to to open the door to vulnerability and to open the door to saying hey you know what i've made a a mistake i've stuffed up here yeah definitely so i've been there with coaches where uh where just getting them to go in so like when they've lost the game so the results are evident and they've called it wrong go in and start from that place of guys i gave you the wrong instructions here my game plan was wrong i, I didn't i didn't call this right and i think when you start from that point of view it opens up a richer conversation so it's about getting them to understand that if you want the players to own it and work with you to to build it you have to go in uh and uh and do that I remember years ago, I, I, I did some work with the team and I I got, like, it was the third year I'd been working with this head coach, right, where I'd, been, I'd gone in. And the way I described that year was I got paid to do nothing for a season. But 
they paid me for five minutes towards the end of the season. And so most of the year was just spent validating good practice. You were looking at it going, they're doing that really well. Or, wow, that's been I had never thought of. So a lot of the year was just spent reinforcing what they were doing. But then mm-hmm. when we got towards the end of uh, this particular season, we were in a playoff game. And the head coach, the whole philosophy was, you've got to take risks. We're not going to play formulaic um, in the way that we do it. You've got to take risks, throw the ball out from your back. You've got to gamble. Mm-hmm. And we're in the last minute of a semi-final for a playoff, and one of our players threw the ball out from his back. It was it was it was neck and neck. He threw the ball out, and the opposition intercepted it, ran, touchdown, and we got knocked out. So emotions were went from excitement to the most crushing of disappointments whole season was over based on this mistake and that was the five minutes that I think I got paid for because I had to say to the head coach don't do a review now Mm. and he was like he was raving ranting and he was furious and emotions were high and my job was to stand in front of him and say please don't just send them home just send them home and we'll do a review tomorrow which is what he did and the reason I did that was I didn't explain this in in these terms at the time, but what I had a sense of was if he'd have gone in at that moment where emotions were high and gone ballistic about this guy throwing the ball out from behind his back and taking a risk, he would have undone the previous 18 months worth of work that we'd done on the culture because you can't tell people to take a risk if you then go ballistic when they take a risk and it doesn't pay off because by definition, that isn't a risk anymore. You play in the odds. So yeah. what I'd said to him was just send them home and then when everyone had calmed down the next morning, he could come in and say, listen, it didn't come off, but your intent was right and we're going to do that again, but we'll get better at next year. And the reality was the next year we went on and won the competition. But yeah. I often think that was the moment that I got paid for in that season because moments like that where it, it, it it's about he could have either built trust and reinforced the trust because the way I explain this to some coaches sometimes is I quote Daniel Kahneman, the psychologist that talks about the peak end law. When people think about their experiences with you, the peak end law says they'll remember three things. The first time they met you, the last time they met you, and the bit in the middle is how you responded when times were at their worst. So if you walk in that dressing room when everyone's crushing and start ranting and raving, they'll remember that. They'll remember that they don't trust you because when things went wrong, you came in and started pointing the finger and accusing them. Whereas I'm convinced that when this coach went in that dressing room afterwards and went, we're all disappointed, let's not talk about this tonight, go home. They'll remember that as well, that he didn't throw them under a bus when it would have been easy to do so. You see, when I hear you talking like that, I'm thinking, you know, that, that for me is sort of like sowing the seeds, not only of trust, not only of, you know, walking the walk and all that but it's for me it sounds like you're sowing the seeds there of what it means to build resilience and mental toughness and you know something goes wrong and rather than vowing never to do it again you know actually not just bouncing back but actually learning from it so next year you win the 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 final or next you know next year the coach is able to you know handle learn from that situation and, and, and handle those things again. And I'm, th- that sort of leads me down this path of, it's a, such a buzzword around 
sport you know like I don't know what stats you see on insta memes and things about you know what percent is physical in sport what percent is mental but usually it's you know it's along the lines of it's about once you get to the highest level it's it's mental you know everyone's fast everyone can throw a ball everyone can tackle yeah but it's what's what you've got going on upstairs in in your head how you handle them pressure moments here's my question for you Damien is your level of mental toughness, is that something you, Damien, need to sort out and you need to show up mentally tough and you need to be resilient? Or is that a me and you thing? Is that a, is that an environment thing yeah. where uh, the environment will determine how mentally tough or resilient you might be? Or yeah. is it an and or both? <laughs> yeah, I think I, I'd go back and say, I don't think uh, there's one answer. I think it's a, and, it's a both and. Like... Like to like, I'll give you an example that in the corporate world sometimes I'll get people that like a leader will phone me up and say oh we need help in developing the resilience of our staff and when you explore more you go no no you don't have a resilience problem you've got a cultural problem what you're doing is you've got a cult a culture of dickheads and you're trying to armor yeah. plate the decent people against the dickheads where your culture needs to sort the dickheads out that yeah and you know like when you <laughs> I go into organizations that casually use the term banter and when you go and experience it you go banter to me is often the excuse of the dickhead that yeah. it's often nasty or snide or yeah. bullying yeah. and when you go whoa hang on why are you doing that they go just banter mate and you go but nobody's yeah. laughing yeah. nobody's yeah. laughing it's you establishing a hierarchy that you have got a sharp tongue and everyone's wary of you so so i think sometimes resilience has to be about the culture because my point is I've, I've yet to see anyone that needs to be resilient in the face of kindness and decency mm. and understanding and empathy. I've met loads of people that need to be resilient when you're surrounded by dickheads, but not when you're <laughs> surrounded by nice people that understand what you're trying to do. Yeah. So some of it might be resilience comes from sort out your culture that people shouldn't need to feel that they're on the guard when uh, mm. they've made a mistake. But then sometimes with some with some people, it is that you can't you can't make me mentally tougher, and I can't make you. But I could work with you to do that. That has to be a relationship. Mm-hmm. But it's not something you can do to somebody. Uh, somebody has to recognise. You know, I need. I, I'd like more confidence in a certain context, or when I'm under pressure, I need to understand my emotions. So mm-hmm. I'll give you an. When we did the podcast, I'll give you a really neat example yeah. of it. That we interviewed Sir Chris Hoy, Britain's greatest ever yeah. Olympian. And the, the bit I was interested in in his career was the 2002 World Championships because that was the year that uh, he was the world champion, went to Stuttgart in Germany, and his rival, a guy called Stefan Nimke, blasted the world record away, literally the race before Hoy went. And, uh, and when he says to people, how did Chris Hoy respond to that? And everyone goes, well, he's a champion. He responded brilliantly. Chris Hoy went, no, I didn't. I panicked. I threw months of preparation out of the window and how crashed and burned badly, came forth, missed out on medals. And he said that was the moment where it made me realise it wasn't a weakness to go and seek help. It was a weakness not to seek help. Mm. So he said I uncovered every stone and understood I don't respond well to pressure. So he then went and sought the help of people that could help him understand the the psychological responses that were happening and how we could rewire it or reinterpret and change his perspective. And I think all high performers see this as uh, as 
something they can learn and develop and get better. They see it like a, as, as another skill that they can develop. The ones that are average dismiss it and poo-poo it and yeah. tell you why it's a waste of time. But I think the high performers are all, I've got that sense of humility and openness to doing it. So I think the relationship stuff can be worked on, but equally there's a cultural thing that has to make it acceptable that people yeah. seek help without being made to feel that they're weak or ridiculous. And, and I'm wondering, because that requires a sense of, um, you know, vulnerability, especially, again, if we're talking about people who are good at what they do, yeah. to suddenly then say, actually, you know, whatever whatever keeps them awake at night, at, you know, 3 a.m. they wake up, it can be really hard for a player to go to a head coach and say, hey, you know what, I'm not actually sure I know what good looks like for me anymore or you know I've, I can't get my opposite number out of my head who were playing on the weekend and so I'm really interested in um, the role of the out the, the outsider <laughs> you know the role of someone who has no no vested interest I'm not I don't make a call on selection I don't have any say in your contract renewal um, or if I'm working with a CEO you know it's not that I'm then going to go off to the CFO and go, oh, you're not going to believe what he said. You know, like, I'm, I'm really interested in this idea because coaching, I've found, is it's getting some traction, but people I don't necessarily understand that one of the most powerful aspects of the coach is the fact that they're not part of the fabric of the organisation. Yeah, yeah. and, and, and I wonder how you communicate that as a value proposition you know like if I go back to what you said before like you know I got paid to do nothing for a season and then for five minutes at the end that's where I earned the money now I know you're being you're probably being very humble about your work but but there is a lot of people I imagine who you know it's that classic line around consultancies you know like they you, you, they, they come in they use your phone and then bill you for the you know bill you for the <laughs> yeah, time yeah. you know and, and it's like how do how do you communicate the value proposition when it's not actually clear necessarily what that might be until you build those relationships yeah that is a really difficult question and i think what what i found is that um people in my experience that Say in sport, there's a really interesting one where people will go, oh, well, will you, like, will you do it for nothing? Like that's, And there's a lot of people that get seduced by working in the glamorous sport and will say, yeah, yeah, I'll do it for nothing. And you go, well, no, don't. If you value what you offer, you won't give it away. You know what I mean? And, and, if, they, and if the person that you're discussing with doesn't value what you can offer, they're not going to value it anymore when they get it for nothing off you. It becomes dis, uh, disposable. So I think you... You, you, the starting point is you have to be clear yourself as to what the value you can offer is, but accept that some of it is intangible. It's difficult to quantify. Like I, I've met guys in the past. Who go, oh yeah, like I've been worth three points a season or something like that. You go, don't be stupid. You can't measure that. You know, like, like I remember years ago being asked to do it, and I think. If I claim to make 1% difference to a team that I work with, I reckon I'm still over-exaggerating my importance mm. because it's about good coaches and good players or in business it's about good leaders and good and, and good staff members doing the right thing over and over again. But I think mm. you can add to that, you can reinforce it. So there's an old um, story about Picasso where he was wandering through a marketplace once and some woman said to him, would you draw us a picture? And he scribbled it on the back of a napkin for her and said, that'd be worth a million pounds. 
So he said, it only took you 30 seconds to do. He said, yeah, it took me 30 years to be able to do that in 30 seconds. And that's what you're paying for. And I think mm. sometimes when you get that, that kind of knowledge or experience from different sectors or different places, you can come and sort of just be a sounding board for people. You can often just make a slight correction, a slight deviation, or just ask them a question that forces them to think in a slightly different way. But it's a really good point you're making, Dan. I think the appetite for that, uh, the appreciation of what you can offer has to come from the person inviting you in. And if that's not there, I think you're on a sticky wicket in my experience. You either have to be happy to come and do it for a reduced rate to justify it and give them the experience of it. Or you have to have the courage to say, you know what, it's not right. Let's just walk away from this until you can learn to recognize the value of it. But I'll give you an example. A few years ago, I did some work with um, a, um, a rugby team. And the question I asked them uh, was, I said, uh, I got them to, div- to to that question about tactical, technical, mental, and physical. I just divided it up into soft and hard skills. I said, let's have a look at you. I said, um, let's, we selected a game and said, how much of your success in this game was down to the hard skills, the stuff we can measure, the yards you ran, the tackles you made, the passes that uh, came off, uh, you know, uh, how fast you were running, and then how much of it was down to soft skills, your confidence, cohesion, communication, stuff that doesn't show up on a spreadsheet. And I said, give me a rough proportion. And the players came back and said 70% of their success, they attributed down to the soft skills because their point, like you made earlier, them and the opposition were roughly the same speed. They could lift the same weights. They could, they were at that level, they were, there was a, you could put a cigarette paper between them. So I said, let's have a look at your training plans for the next week. And said, how much time are you spending on communication, cohesion, confidence? And the reality was it was less than 10%. So you go, well, if you're telling me 70% of your success has come from these factors, but you invest less than 10% of it, why do you think you're going to get any better, any significantly better? Where do you think any significant improvement is going to be? And I think some people recognize that, some don't. So I'm working with a a first-time head coach at the moment over here in the UK. And uh, we've just done quite a long pre-season. The vast majority of the working, so the, the, it's been physically tough for them, don't get me wrong, that the players are physically fit. But the vast majority of what we've done is just get players to share their story with each other. So it was a club where there was lots of cliques, there was divisions, there was inconsistency. And what we've done is spent an awful lot of time just getting players to understand each other's stories a little bit better, getting them to understand the importance of showing up and shaking hands with each other and respecting teammates. And it's all stuff like that. That you, How do you quantify that at the end of a season? Well, we'll find out. But but it, that the head coach in this case was is far-sighted enough to know these soft skills are going to lead to hard, uh, hard, the hard, tangible results that we're going to measure ourselves against. 
I started our chat with a question you always ask, um, you know, your guests. And so I want to hit you with, and it's a kind of a, it's a variation on a theme because you often ask, you know, what are, what, what are your non-negotiables, yeah. you know, that people have to buy into yeah. in order to be high performance. And now, and rather than necessarily your non-negotiables, but I'm interested if, is there two or three common themes which hit on it or, or is it different for everyone or, or other themes of high performance? What are the non-negotiables that people have to buy into? Yeah. Um, so if I just explain why why I ask those questions when you go into it, because what I find is that ambiguity is an enemy in so many high-performing cultures. When people are not clear what you stand for, it becomes subjective that they go, oh, I don't like him. Why not? Oh, he's not polite. Well, have you asked for how important is politeness? Have you communicated that being polite or respectful is important here? Because if you haven't, you're just responding and reacting. Uh, you're reacting to what's going on. And I think when you go into most high-performing cultures and speak to leaders, there's no ambiguity. These are the standards. This is what you have to buy into. So I often think it, it's just a great way of starting to get an idea of, could I work here? Could I be a part of this? So mm. when we interviewed Mauricio Pochettino, the, the former Spurs coach, he's now at PSG, he's got three. His three are um, uh, bring a positive energy, have a can-do attitude and um, be a team player. Now, what he said, he had a really nice way of framing this. He said, I'll tell you up front, that's what I'm going to demand of you. And he went, but if you came back to me and went, you know what, Mauricio, that isn't for me. That's not something that appeals to me. He went, we don't want to fall out about each other, but I'm not changing. So that's the stage where I'd say to you, well, I'll tell you what, let's work together and we'll find you a different environment where you can come and thrive. But I'm not going to allow you to stay here and resist what we're doing but so and i thought that was a really non nice non-confrontational way of explaining it but mm. to answer your question i think i think i've seen three three real themes um across high performance one of them is humility so humility is just and now humility i'm conscious is it's almost like a meme or a cliche. Do you know what I mean? Like you'll see somebody in front Honored of Honoured and humbled. Yeah, I'm, oh, I'm humbled by that. Oh, humility is, isn't a cliche or a meme. It's a mindset. And I, and I think there's three stages to the humility mindset. The first stage is peak idiot stage, where you think you know more than you do. Get beyond that. Then humility comes in the second stage of what I call the valley of humility. And this is punctuated by or characterized by curiosity and open-mindedness like a willingness to explore. And then high performers get to the third stage, which is the hill of knowledge. They know why they're good. They can explain it, but they've got no problem in going back into the valley to learn more, to take back with them. So I think humility and open-mindedness is key there. I think another one is this idea of complete accountability. So the the idea of self-efficacy, do you blame, do you externalize it or do you internalize underperformance and I think when you hear lots of head coaches for example you can play a game when um, I know like the uh, the NRL kicked off over there last week but listen to head coaches after that or if you ever follow the soccer and how a head coach frames a defeat if they're coming out and they blame the opposition the referee the climate the culture the, the, uh, the COVID whatever it is you know that they're externalizing the blame the best coaches will come in and go, you know what, our training wasn't intense this week or 
we didn't start as crisp as we wanted to in that first 20 minutes. We need to work on our conditioning. These are They frame it as in, I can fix this, and they take accountability for it. And then the third one, um, this might sound a little bit strange or incongruent, but it's about kindness, kindness and decency. I think that bit doesn't uh, go out of fashion. Um, when we interviewed Sia Khaleesi, the captain of the South African rugby team, he cited that. He said, I'll fight for a teammate, but I'll die for a member of my family. And he went, so he said, spending time, being kind to each other, understanding each other, trying to know where we come from is the starting point of a resilient, robust culture. So to answer that question, Dan, I'd say that there's three, humility, accountability, and kindness. And is that because work ethic is kind of a given or or is that is a work ethic not as useful without those three yeah i think work ethic um is almost like a consequence of it if you're open-minded enough to work and to then recognize it and go right how do i get better at this the um the idea of accountability is you don't wait for someone to make you work hard you just do it to get better yourself so i think it, it like a work ethic is almost like a consequence of this mindset that if that if you go, I wasn't fit enough there, but you were accountable, you go, what? Well, so I need to get fitter. I need to work harder in the gym rather than you didn't get me fit enough. And then the kindness is sometimes accepting that, you know what, we all cock up, we all make mistakes, we all get put on our ass. But I think when you're kind to yourself, you can be kind to others and go, you know what, you made a mistake, that's fine. Let's pick yourself up. Let's be accountable. Let's be humble enough to work out how we get better. And let's go again and try and improve next time. Damien, um, you've been incredibly generous with your time there. I really appreciate it. I could chat for you for, chat to you for uh, <laughs> ages. You. And and what I'm hoping is maybe when I can get back to the UK, we might catch up uh, for a I'd beer in the blue part. In the blue no, no, part. That bit. I love the first bit, <laughs> not the second bit. We'll meet, <laughs> we'll meet in, but, um, a, in like the Switzerland of <laughs> Manchester. We'll meet in a neutral part of it. Yeah, yeah, we'll go to Stockport County. How's that sound? <laughs> um, if if anyone's been listening to this and gone, yeah, that he sounds he sounds an interesting character. This uh, Damien Hughes. Where where would they um, be able to track you down um, on the internet? I've got a website called liquidthinker.com, um, and there's a contact page there where people can get a hold of me. Uh, I'm not particularly active on social media for. A few reasons. Uh, one, I've just met so many high performers that just don't touch it. They just say it's a distraction. And uh, I've realized that uh, the potential for that. And then I read a brilliant book by a guy called Jonathan Haidt called The Coddling of the American Mind that speaks about the consequences of spending too much time online. He talks about you become, uh, you sort of exist in an echo chamber of your own thoughts and your own ideas. You suddenly start taking offence at things rather than trying to interpret things. And then uh, you divide everything up into binary terms. Everything's black or white, good or bad, and there's no nuance. So I figured that for my own sanity, <laughs> come off it, yeah. but then yeah. make myself accessible. And what I find is that, any, that when people take the trouble to send you an email, say through the website, there's often a purpose to it. Whereas if it's too easy to do it, that means easy for good or bad reasons. Uh, people don't put as much thought into 
uh, into it so they can choose to yeah. abuse you or they can choose yeah. to, to come out with some fl- sort of flippant remarks. So it's a long-winded way of answering the question, but uh, it's, um, yeah, liquidthinker.com is where if anyone wants to get in touch, I'm happy to to help them and send them some further information if they need it. Beautiful. And, of course, um, the recommendation also would be, once you've listened to this podcast, is go and check out the High Performance Podcast because it's, um, as I said right at the start, it's uh, a fantastic um, podcast that covers so much ground with some really interesting people. Yeah, thanks, Dan. I think part of the reason I feel comfortable in sort of promoting that, I'm not a big one for self-promotion or telling people... um, anything like that but I think part of the reason I'm comfortable with uh, with talking about the podcast as well as your own is that it's a free resource and I think that was a big driver for me when uh, I did it with uh, with Jake is that we, you give this information away to people don't put it behind paywalls and charge people for it give this these conversations to people that they can access and use it to their own uh, uh, for their own means so yeah, please. If anyone is interested in it, there's um, there's a lot of them similar to your own, where it's people can get them and listen to them for nothing. Mate, thanks so much for your time. No, thank uh, take you. Care. I loved oh, it. I really appreciate it. Take care over there, mate. Look after everyone with the, uh, with the. You know, I think you're coming out of lockdown relatively soon. Is that right? They're talking about the 12th of April uh, is when yeah. they'll start easing restrictions, but then yeah. they're also putting out saying that we're gonna. There's a third wave gripping Europe and we'd like oh, really? to get that. So yeah. I, the, the reality is you, you, we can't control any of it. We just have to make the best of it. And that's probably a, a good way to end. Thanks again, mate. Thank Cheers. you, mate. Loved it. If you found that conversation interesting, as we often say, there is a fair chance that someone you know will also find it interesting. If you liked it, please officially like it wherever you get your podcast, perhaps even leave a comment, and of course, make sure to subscribe. If you would like to check out past episodes or you'd have a suggestion for future episodes, perhaps you have a question that you'd like us to dig into in one of our upcoming Q&As, then of course, head over to habitsofleadership.com and click on the podcast page. And whilst you're there, of course, you can also hop over to the Academy page to see if the Habits of Leadership Academy is something you might be interested in. So until next time, thank you so much for listening. Take care. Take it easy.